the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Ab number 325 for Monday, April 11th, Observers, Mac Geek Up, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips, you send in cool stuff found. We try to answer your questions. We share all our tips that we can, and uh, we have a great time here helping all of us learn more about the Mac and beyond. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. <laughs> and beyond. Well, that's cool. Isn't it? What is, is that good? I, I like it. To infinity and beyond. And that's this right. is John F. Braun here in uh, sunny, warm uh, Fairfield, Connecticut. Yeah, it feels like spring. And uh, it feels like spring here in Durham, New Hampshire. Who, uh, where, uh, hi, Pete. Where, who, hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Pilot Pete here. That's Pilot Pete, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Sounded good on this microphone. I like this one. You've been grounded, Pete? I like, like the sound on of my own voice. Yeah. You're, uh, yeah, you're on a slightly different mic today. I like That's that. Right. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of stuff to go through, and of course, we're not here next week because uh, because we're taking the week off. Is is frankly what uh, why we're not here. So let's see what we can do here, John. Let's let's dive right in and and see what Bob has to say. Bob says, "My wife and I got iPod touches for each of our three kids. We initially set up allowance accounts under their own iTunes accounts, each with their own sign on and passwords. They, that seemed like a good idea at first." Now, of course, they each want apps that the other has purchased, and we do not want to purchase them more than once. Do you recommend another way for families to share apps between kids, like signing them on under one of our accounts and just keeping track of how many purchases they can make? By the way, the same question pertains to sharing movies and songs purchased. This might be more of a lesson in parenting than that is how to share apps, but I appreciate (laughs) anything you might be able to tell. Okay, so, uh, yeah, we run into the same thing here in my house. My guess is that this is... A very common issue uh, as kids are getting iPod touches and and you're right to not want to have to buy an app more than once. You shouldn't have to. Uh, Apple's license doesn't require you to. You get to use it on all the uh, iOS devices that you have that you have connected and with the uh, you know, with everybody in your family. So we solve this um, here. Um well, I mean, there's a couple different ways we have. We have two accounts that we share amongst all our devices. And it again, it was just sort of born out of how we had the account set up uh, initially. But we use iTunes home sharing as, as kind of the. The cornerstone of this and. There's a, we, we can point to a knowledge base article about home sharing, but essentially what it does is it allows you to. uh connect iTunes libraries on the same local network together and copy files back and forth between them. So in the past, you used to be able to mount someone else's iTunes library and stream songs across, uh, you know, so that you could hear music from another library. But, but with home sharing, you can actually copy stuff across and it's not just songs. You can copy movies as long as they aren't rentals, uh, eBooks, and of course apps. So being able to copy these apps across uh, makes it easier because now once the apps on your computer, you can then, of course, you know, sync it down to your iOS device and and that makes life easier. So that's one way of doing it. Um, and, and, and what's cool with home sharing is you can tell it to automatically copy 
uh, new apps that it finds. So, for example, you know, I have uh, I have my my thing set up with my wife's library. Uh, I don't necessarily want the music that she gets, let's say, but I want the apps that she gets. And so I can turn on apps and turn off music. And then anytime iTunes is open on my computer and it sees that iTunes is open on hers, it'll go across and say, all right, what do you got for me? What new apps do you have that I don't? And then it'll slurp them across the network. And then they're, they're right there in, uh, in my iTunes. So, so that's one way of doing it. And that, like I said, that's kind of the the foundation of what we do here. But a lot of times you're going to want to put the app on your iPod without resyncing back to to iTunes you know we're we, I, I don't know I mean I sync maybe twice a month with iTunes I think my kids probably sync less than that so what we'll do is we'll just go to the iPod and we know okay well you know we bought uh, Infinity Blade with my account so if my son wants that on his iPod I just go into the iTunes store I sign in with my account there and download and it says oh you already own this it's like yeah okay fine so you can have we've talked about this before but in a general sense, you can have apps on your iOS device from multiple iTunes store accounts simultaneously. And and that that's kind of the, the big picture of this. And then there's there's a couple of ways to do it. So uh, you, you probably don't you probably don't deal with this, do you, John? No, because I, I think well, I think what, what I'm seeing here. So normally without home sharing, it sounds to me like like my model, I have a single account and multiple i devices that i can choose and you sync them which, all with the same mac correct yeah right okay. so my, right. my mac right. uh, so i have a single machine where i have all my i device apps some go on the touch some go on the iphone some go on both yep but they're all tied to and i guess this is the the issue here without home sharing they're all tied to a single itunes store account no, no, no. Mm. Home sharing. So, yeah, this gets a little confusing because home oh, sharing. Oh, it's not transcending that? Because it sounds no. to me like that's that's the issue because he was saying he has, each of the kids has their own account. Right, right. It, they do. And, and and that's almost irrelevant that they have their own account. Oh, okay. it, it, you know, home sharing. But it, but it, it brings up a good point, perhaps uh, incidentally. When you set up home sharing on multiple Macs, you set it up on the first one and you actually sign into an iTunes store account. Mm-hmm. And then in order to get home sharing to work on all of your Macs, you have to go and set up home sharing on each of them individually, signing in to the same iTunes store account that you used for the first one. But mm-hmm. it's important to note that this is not necessarily the same account you're using in the iTunes store portion of iTunes, it, it, it's very convoluted because you can, you know, like on my wife's computer, for example, it, it, perhaps it's helpful if I give the, you know, the real world example. So on my computer, uh, when I turn on, I, I set mine up as the first one on home sharing. So I go in, I go into iTunes, I turn on home sharing and it says, what account do you want to associate this with? So I associate it with my account that I use for my uh, purchases. That doesn't change anything on mine. Everything's good to go. Now I go to my wife's computer and I go set up home sharing. Now she logs into her own iTunes store account. But when I'm setting up home sharing, I say uh, connect it to my iTunes store account only for the purposes of home sharing. And, And all that does, it has nothing to do with what apps can or can't be transferred. They all can. All it does is there needs to be some centralized way at Apple's servers to say, ah, yes, all of these computers are authorized to home share. 
And, and you do that by linking them to one iTunes store account. But again, it, it's abstracted from the data that can be shared. Any data can be shared other than movie rentals. Okay. And it doesn't matter what account they were purchased with. Yeah, it gets very, very convoluted, but uh, only because you're using terminology and, and accounts that can be used for both purposes. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it is kind of funky. But but if you go to their knowledge base article and it will walk you through setting this up, they they they. They did a decent enough job of explaining it that I was never confused through the process, despite the fact that explaining it is a very confusing process. Does that sound good? No, I'm confused. How do you deal with this at your house, Pete? You have you you must have multiple. I know you have multiple eye devices. Yeah, I do. Um, frankly, uh, we we haven't done much uh, with the Apple TV too. Um, oh, that's right. You know, I've I put the uh, I put the main library with all the stuff on it yep. on the Drobo in the basement, which is a NAS drive, right? Um, but when it comes to, uh, just sharing, uh, I basically, I've enabled my son's iPod to share my apps and that, that I've got on my iPhone and that's it. I mean, I really haven't. So I wish I had a better answer. (laughs) No, you know, the the simpler, the better. If you don't mind sharing one iTunes store account amongst all your devices, uh, which includes, you know, all your kids devices and all that, if you don't mind everybody having access to it, it really does make things simpler. The, The only issue is. For example, if, you know, in my example that I used before, so I put, I bought Infinity Blade, I put it on my son's iPod Touch, it's now authorized under my account. So if an update comes out for Infinity Blade, my son now has to go type my password in oh, okay. uh, when, when it updates on his iPhone or his iPod Touch. So, it, you know, I'm, and the question is, do you want to, you know, give kids passwords? I mean, it, it depends on how you organize your life, but, but that, you know, that's the only part where it gets somewhat convoluted. Right. right. So. And, I, and I do have two iTunes libraries though. I mean, and, and it was more important when I had podcasts that updated regularly and that sort of thing. Right. So I kept them basically on my hard drive yet. I kept all the movies and that sort of thing on the NAS drive in the basement. If I was going to go on the road, I'd grab three or four movies, throw them on there so I could have them on my, yeah. on my laptop. Sure. But, uh, uh, I, I basically, th- that's how I try to keep it simple. It, the, it. All my music, all my movies and all that are on the NAS drive. And um, everybody and sees then, it. Yeah. And then yeah. the applications, and even though my wife has an iPhone, she's not interested in any, any no of apps. the apps. You know, huh. so it's like, huh. why do you have an iPhone? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So, but my son has the iPod touch and uh, I, like I say, I've authorized some app sharing with him. And yep. so same thing, put in the yeah. password and he's good to go. Yeah. So, so Dave or Andor, so what would if you had to start from scratch? I'd do one account. Okay, that that, yeah. that was my question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we've got two here, and it's not too bad. But but mm-hmm. I could see where having five accounts would be terrible. And if if you are at a point where you've got five, just pick one and 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 you know buy all your new stuff on that, so that at least down the road you you know you you you've got something or or homogenize the passwords across all five. So it doesn't matter anymore. Oh, there you go. That's probably the simplest, you know, if you, if you're as stuck in that the position, people you can trust. Yeah. yeah. Right. It sounds to me like the intent here was to give each child a certain number of credits and a certain level of buying ability. Right. For, you could for do that each. with the iTunes gift cards for their account, obviously. Well, but, yeah, but then they have to have their own but, accounts. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's an imperfect scenario. Yeah. It, there's there's not there's no one magic answer. We we do it, and I mean we we go through the same thing that that uh, that Bob's going through. You know, we we just keep a spreadsheet of of app purchases, and the kids know they're not allowed to purchase any apps without clearing it with us. 
And when they do, then we just know we just mark it down and we say, okay, yeah, buck here, buck there. And at the end of the month, we settle it up and that's that. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. It, so it's so it's a better a, system. Okay. So it is uh, both, uh, the, the, as he was saying, so it's both a technological, but uh, perhaps also a, uh, a, a parenting issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got to figure out what works for you. Along these lines, Chris writes, he says, in my quest to slim down the data on my drive in preparation for replacing it with a smaller SSD, I found that many of my iPhone or iPad apps are duplicated. The duplicate file names end in space one or another number dot IPA. Given that my apps take up 13 gigs of space on my disk, I'm wondering if it's safe to simply delete the duplicates, the ones with the space one at the end of their file names. So this is interesting, John, uh, because uh, I've seen this happen on mine, but I don't have a magic answer as to why iTunes does sometimes keep older versions of apps when it's doing an update. And, and again, I can't tell you why, because it's not every app and I think it's happening less and less frequently. So, uh, but, it, but it clearly it happens. The, the trick is, that sometimes that file with the space one dot IPA is the new one. And sometimes it's the old one. So you got to figure out which one you want to keep. And for me, the easiest way to do it is to go into iTunes, click on apps, find the app and do a get info and see what file names associated with it. And then delete the other one. That that's what I do. Huh? And I think more often than not, the space one, uh, or this, the one with the, the higher number is the newest one and is the, uh, in, in essence, not the duplicate, but, but the, uh, the current use one. You know, I got to say, I have not run into this now. Maybe it's because I only have a single account. I, I have noticed now looking at some huh. of the apps. So what I'm looking at, Dave, yep. is if I go to music, so my music folder, yeah. iTunes, and yep. then within that is a mobile applications folder. That's right. That is all the IPA, which is an iOS app file. Right. And some of them do have typically a one after them. And I'm trying to wonder if it's either due to an update occurring. There's only one app that I know where it's two apps that are both called Discover. Okay. Which is kind of wacky. One says Discover and the other says Discover Space 2. One of them is the Discover credit card app. The other is an app called Discover that does some level of file sharing. And I see oh. that occur twice. All the And that's the only one where I see a two. But I, I do also see some that do not have a version number that is something dot something dot something. But it's the name of the app, a space, and then a one. But I do not see, and maybe it's because my, my system is relatively simple and that I only have a single iTunes account. I, I don't see any apps that are duplicated where one app is there with just the name and the other is a space one dot IPA. So I. When did you start using a device? And I, I'm going to guess it was an iPod touch knowing what I know about your computing history mm -hmm. here. But when did you get your first iPod touch and actually start using apps? Because I think this problem, I, I think oh, this problem has be been solved okay. exactly, and and I think okay. it only exists for for older you know apps that were downloaded before they solved whatever the problem it is that oh, caused okay. this. Well, I'm looking, and if I look at the date modified, yep. I will see that my oldest app is around 2009. Oh, okay. And up until earlier this year. 
that's when I got the iPhone and I'm starting to sync to one or the other. And of course, unchecking, as we've discussed, there's that checkbox somewhere that says automatically sync apps, which I disabled because I don't necessarily want all the apps on both devices, either because they won't work or or it's just my, my personal preference. Right, right. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I see what you're saying. So maybe if you if you've been running an iDevice for a while, you know, of course they migrate maybe. when iTunes upgrades. Right. In the, so maybe this is old cruft. I think as you pointed out, yeah. I mean, you could whack it and. Well, yeah. The worst thing that if you, the worst thing that happens if you delete the one you wanted is you just re-download it. I mean, it, all this stuff's still available in the store unless you've got some app that was pulled from the store, in which case, you know, guard it with your uh, life. But uh, but they do but, that. What's that? <laughs> they do that. Uh, they yeah, occasionally. Yeah, it's happened. Uh, it's usually when a developer, you know, sneaks one past the goalie. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and then they find out, hey, wait, you know, that flashlight app is actually a, a tethering app. Who knew? You know? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that, exactly. was, that was cute. Yeah. 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 there's a couple of those out there. But um, but yeah, that you know, that's the uh, other than that, you're safe because Apple will let you redownload for free presumably an unlimited number of times though if you tested that theory they might have some limit but we haven't heard of it yet all right right. uh you know let's talk about our first sponsor here john and that is barebones software and i I love barebones they they make cool stuff uh i think their logo or their their motto is they make stuff that doesn't suck uh (laughs) which is great i want to talk today about bb edit nine BB Edit 9 is the text editor to beat all other text editors. Uh, and you might think, well, I don't I don't need a text editor. Well, you, you might. You might not. Uh, but if you do any sort of coding, and, and I'm talking all the way from, you know, high level C stuff to simple HTML editing, you might want BB Edit 9. Uh it really works so smoothly and it's built. You know, it's, it's really cool because it's built by programmers and they use it themselves. Right. I think they, I think BB edit is written with BB edit. It is the editor that they use to, uh, to edit all this code. So, you know, the, these are programmers that get to write the app that, that they use to work all day. And so this thing is totally tweaked out. If you're writing uh, even just HTML code, It'll automatically pick up on the fact that, yeah, okay, this is an HTML document. And then it starts highlighting things automatically without you doing anything and really making it easy to see the flow of the code. Uh, It'll figure out that you've got sections or formulas or functions, depending on, you know, what language you're in and allow you, you know, the little uh, the little triangle twisty thing that you get in the finder, John, when you can open and close a, a folder in list view. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can get that inside BB edit uh, for a function, right? So you write a big, long function and then you want to scroll through your code and you don't want to necessarily see down deep into every function. You can twist it and fold up the entire function, which is just so cool. I mean, it it doesn't edit it. I mean, when you type it edits, but by twisting up the function, it doesn't change the way your code works. It just changes what you see. And it it's so cool. Uh, it's they've got you know, multi-level find you can find across multiple files, even if all those files are on an FTP server. So if you have a website and you've got, you know, your, your files up on, on a server and you want to go and search through them, you can actually do this with BB edit. Uh, if you do anything at the command line, 
it installs a command line tool. So if you're, you're around in the command line and you decide, Oh, I want to edit that text file. You don't have to use VI or nano or, or Emacs at the command line. You can type BB edit space and the name of the file. And it actually launches it in the GUI version of BB edit, which is pretty darn cool. Uh, BB edit of course is from barebones.com. Uh, it is available as a trial download, of course. So that's the, uh, that's the right way to start. And then once you're hooked, it's 99 bucks and, uh, and you can buy it right there at, uh, at barebones.com. If you're a student, you get it for half price. Uh, well, even slightly less than half price, 49 bucks. So, uh, so go check it out. Barebones.com. Uh, BB edit is probably one of those, one of those apps where a day does not go by where I don't launch it for something. Uh, it's just so powerful. Even if I'm not doing code, if I'm just doing lists, if I want to resort a group of text, uh, it, it's just, it, it is my go-to app for just about anything. And it's cool. I, I use it nearly every day. Well, I use yeah. it at least once a week because I use it to lovingly handcraft our show notes because mm. I kick it in HTML. Right. And once it realizes HTML, it does a great job, as you point out, to color code everything. Yep. So you make sure you're, do, you're doing it properly. And, so, and the uh, cool part is in the file menu, there's both quit and a sleep command. So one of the most frustrating things is, you know, to get six different files open if you've got a project you're working on or whatever, and then have to quit and close all those files. And when you come back, you got to reopen them all. And it's got great ways. It's got a cool way of managing projects in there. So you can have multiple files associated. But even that sometimes, you know, you get started and OK, well, now I'm at the beginning of every file. I don't want to be there. I have to relay out my windows. They've got a sleep command and sleep quits the app, but it saves everything. And when you relaunch the app, it all comes back. The windows are in the same spot. Your cursor's in the same spot. It's awesome. So uh, barebones.com, BB edit, go check it out. You won't, uh, you won't be sorry. I don't think, I don't think you will be. Uh, all right. Uh, we have an interesting question from Bill. It gets a little convoluted. So I, I think I'm just going to try and paraphrase what he's looking to do. Uh, because the eventual solution here is something that that is not necessarily obvious, but but uh, a uh, a handy thing to know is possible. That, and that's kind of what we try to do here, folks. Right. We, we try to take these questions that come in and 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 answer the question for the person that's asking it, but also try and share as much as we can with you uh, to, to kind of increase your knowledge base. Right. Because we know that every question doesn't immediately apply to every listener. And so. That's uh, that's how we roll. So Bill writes, uh, and again, I'll, I'll start reading and then I'll paraphrase a little. When I first got on a Mac three years ago, I didn't set up separate user accounts for my wife and me coming from a nine year old machine running Windows 98. It simply never entered my mind. Belatedly, I have set up separate user accounts. Among the things we shared was Apple's mail app, although we certainly each had our own email addresses. Now I want to move all of her existing email messages from her inbox stored under my user account to her inbox stored in her user account. I tried simply copying from the mail library and moving it through the shared folder on my Mac to the library folder in her account. And while the messages can be read, they don't show up in her inbox. I then thought of archiving and importing. I'd never archived a mail inbox before. Uh, and I think that this would have worked, but I got myself into trouble and we talked. So we'll stop right there. So, so there's a couple of things uh, that, that you could do to solve this problem. If you were able, and, and he wasn't clear about where these messages appeared once he put them in her library folder. 
Uh, but if you were able to open them in mail and maybe they came in in a different, you know, archive mailbox or something like that, the inbox is a, a mailbox like like any other. And you can drag things into it as well as out of it. So if you've got this stuff open in mail and you can manipulate the messages, just drag them to, to her inbox and you're good to go. That that that's certainly possible and i do it all the time i bring stuff you know if i accidentally archive something and i think oh i want to go back to my inbox i just put it back in the inbox right i mean it there's nothing special about that mailbox except that's where new mail also happens to be delivered right that is that fair to say john i'm still trying to parse this because i i I think there are some let me toss in what i'm thinking while you're talking Okay. Which I, I sometimes do. Yes. Is that I, I see a conflict here. So, so there is user accounts and then there's mail accounts. And I think at some point along the way here, they may have gotten, well, then I see an attempt here, which sounds like uh, Bill was digging into the low level actual folders on, on the computer. And I, I don't know if I would have done that. I see shared folder mentioned here and that makes right. me a little bit nervous. Attempting to deal with mail at that level. I don't know if I would have necessarily done that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, he's dragging stuff out of the library folder into the shared folder and then into his wife's library folder on the other user account. Right. I I would have not gone to that level. Now, again, he says he was running windows and that I'm not, I'm not not trying to be insulting, but it sounds like a, a windows way of solving the problem in that. I think it could have been done through the application itself without having to, because I don't think you should ever be fiddling with the actual folders from the finder when you're dealing with most apps, at least in this case. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that, I think that would have worked. I, I don't know how else he would have done it. I mean, I have another solution. If he's running an IMAP account, the easy, there's an easy solution, right? If, if both he and his wife have IMAP email accounts, the, the easy solution is to connect both inside his mail program, right? If he's got all of her mail stored in his mail program, then uh, set up the IMAP account for his wife there as well. And then simply drag the messages into her IMAP mailbox and then turn off the IMAP account on, uh, on his wife's side or on his side, turn off his wife's IMAP account from mail in his account and then go over to his other to his wife's user account, connect that up to her IMAP mail account, and the messages will just magically be there, right? Because that's how IMAP works. The, the the messages are actually all stored on the server, so whatever you manipulate on your computer is replicated on the server. And if you sync up another either computer or account there, boom, they all come back down. So I I wasn't sure if he had IMAP, but that would that would be an easy answer. And like you said, it 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 lets you work within the framework of mail, John, right. Instead of going out and having the monkey with, with the, the file system and all of that good stuff. Yeah. The, the only thing, other thing that occurs to me is that there was mention here of archiving within mail. And when I dug into archiving from mail, I think this is, this is another problem, which I, I don't think it's necessarily clear that when you do this, but, but based on the documentation that I read, I, I think this is a problem with the way, mail app, at least mail app handles archives is that if you archive a mail folder and I think he said he ran into this. So if you archive a mail folder, okay, great. It creates a folder with all the mail. The problem is I think what happens is if you try to archive it again, 
and I think this is maybe a problem with the way mail handles it. And maybe, maybe it's, the, I don't know if it's the right way to do it, but if you try to archive again, based on what I read in the mail documentation, it's not going to create an archive that is inclusive. It's going to create an archive that's going to be a delta between what happened before and all the new stuff. And I think that could, that could bite you. And I think that's what may have happened. It, yeah, it did properly. Right. Yeah. The, the other half of the message that we didn't read goes into the whole convoluted thing with with archives. And 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 yeah, that's it, you're right. It could have worked, but archiving in mail is a little funky, I think is, is the right term. Uh, <laughs> uh, the one that'll let us keep our clean rating. But but I think it's necessarily intuitive to me. Archive implies you're archiving everything in the item that you selected it's not a delta so right right that's right yeah or it should give you a choice saying hey you want to archive everything or you want to archive just the new stuff right and and i don't think it makes it clear the, the only other thing i mentioned in this is that and we touched on this in the past then i at least was kind of amazed that this happened but there's always looking at the mail trash working again within the the confines of the mail app there's always if you're using time machine there's always the possibility that you could retrieve things that are lost because it sounds like that's what happened here is that you could always try to retrieve things that are lost if you go into the trash because as you and I found Dave again to my surprise at least uh, the trash being just another folder is archived as well or, or not archived I'm sorry it's backed up by time machine by time machine okay huh. so uh, because he's saying it, it sounds like some messages were lost so right. Well, no, 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 he didn't say any messages were lost. Oh, no, no, it was just that, well, he had deleted. And again, this kind of goes deeper than than we need to go here into his particular thing. But but he had created an archive and then deleted the archive. But he didn't delete any of the messages from within mail. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, in that case, we're cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Because you're saying again, assuming IMAP, because I didn't see IMAP or pop mentioned here. Yeah, it's it's hard to know. But, you know, still, I, I think I think you could grab the messages from the library mail folder. I know it's not I know it's mm-hmm. not uh, I know it's not perfect, but but I think in this case it would work. Just make a copy of those, pull them in and then just copy them once you're inside mail on her end. Just copy them to the inbox. Mm. And and there's nothing wrong with copying to the inbox from within mail. That uh, it works fine. Right. All right. Um this was interesting. We got a couple of emails about this during the last uh, regular show. I think it was 323. I started uh, us on a little tangent because I noticed my CPU usage was spiking and it oh, turned yeah. out right. Remember this? It was that I had time machine. Your, your mini tale of woe, which I don't know if it was tale of woe, but it was certainly something, something happening that you weren't expecting to happen, especially chewing a processor while we're recording the show, which right. And, and what it turned out to be was Time Machine had, for whatever reason, decided to um, that that it had to verify my backup volume, uh, and and so that's what it was doing, and that's what was eating all the CPU. I made the uh, perhaps critical error of of just killing off that file check process, and, and yeah, um, and well, we'll 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 talk a little bit about this, so. Here's the interesting thing. Well, that was the what, what, FSCK. It was, it was running some it, FS. It, yeah. FSCK underscore HFS, I think was the name of the name of the process. And that that's just checking the file system of this uh, sparse bundle. 
So we got we got a couple of emails about other people that that were seeing exactly this or the result of this. And uh, and Adam kind of encapsulates a lot of what we saw. Adam says, here's my setup. I have a one and a half terabyte Seagate drive connected to my airport express via USB. I've been using it as a time machine repository for about a year, primarily for my MacBook. It's been working without incident all this time over wireless and sometimes Ethernet. A G4 Mini and a Power Mac G5 do backups to this drive over Ethernet as well. A couple of weeks ago, I got a message on the MacBook saying, Time Machine completed a verification of your backups. To improve reliability, Time Machine must create a new backup for you. This is the same message I saw, John, after killing off the FSCK underscore HFS process. And there are two options. One is backup later, i.e. bring this message back up at another time or start a new backup, i.e. wipe out my old backup. And, uh, you know, and it even says this will wipe this will remove your existing backup history. This could take several hours. So, uh he says, uh, I let it do a new backup. It removed the old one. And over the next day or so via Ethernet completed a new backup. I let it do a second cycle of verify and create new after the message reoccurred a couple of days later. My problem is now it wants to do it after every complete backup. This is obviously not how time machine is supposed to work. So for the moment, I have an aging snapshot of my hard drive and I'm not backing up any new data. So in looking at both his logs and my logs, uh, it seems that time machine will, if, if this uh, file system check fails for any reason, now, of course it could fail because there is something wrong with the backup bundle, but it could also fail. If for example, the user quits the process, i.e. what I did. And there doesn't seem to be a way to tell it, Oh, reset that and try again. No, it, uh, it was not interested in trying again. We were going to go ahead and wipe this backup out. And that was that. So, uh, so I've wound up with a new backup, which is nice, you know, little house cleaning, lost some, uh, or gained some space on my time capsule. That's always nice. Uh, of course I don't have my backup history for this machine anymore, but, uh, but I'm okay with that. Um, that that's, that's not a problem. The, the question is for Adam, John, why this keeps happening. Um, and I, I'm sort of at a loss. I, I'm guessing that it's creating a new sparse bundle every time for him. And I assumed that's what it did for me too. Uh, but maybe it didn't, right? Maybe it's re maybe it just emptied out that old sparse bundle and is repopulating it. And if he's got some, you know, I, I don't know. It seems it's a stretch. I, I don't know why it would keep telling him this. I'm with you because actually that message and it's in a support article. Cause yep. you know, I'm all about support articles. You are HT four oh seven six. All right, and it's funny because that article has been archived and is no longer updated by Apple. If you look at the link I sent you in our chat room, huh? But no, what this what this is indicating is, as you pointed out, and and they actually go into detail about what this means. Basically, it means I think when you boil it down, yeah, your backup backup image is corrupt, and I want to wipe it out. So, so wait a minute, I'm going to, I'm going to point something out here. This article was archived and no longer updated by Apple as per the banner on the, uh, on the article itself, but it was updated at February 16th of this year. Yeah. So it's not that old. I mean, funny, it's, huh? you know, it's less than two months. Well, actually two months. Exactly. You know, almost. Yeah. Less than two months. And as long as they don't kill their backups, it won't disappear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hoping somebody at Apple's making backups. Yeah. But anyways, now what occurs to me is that, 
uh, and they go into detail. They're saying, well, this comes up. Yeah. When we detect a problem with the sparse bundle and then they actually go into detail saying, well, hey, if you want to do this yourself, which you don't have to anymore, because now it's, of course, in the time machine you know, if you hold down the option key, you can say verify backup. They actually told you how to do this manually, which I think involved running disutility. Okay. And actually mounting that sparse bundle, which I think is basically what, what that choice does now. But I think all, all paths lead to the fact that that sparse bundle is somehow corrupted. Now, I'm wondering, is it because I, I think he mentioned it's a external drive. It yeah, sounds actually, like it's, it's having a, a problem. It's an air disk that he's using. Connected to his, Airport and I think before extreme. you said exp- and, and yeah, I think before you said express, but it's extreme. Yeah, it is extreme. Yeah. I'm yeah. wondering if for some reason there, there's some problem with that drive because it sounds like it can't make the uh, the new sparse bundle because it sounds like what that command is saying is I'm going to trash everything and make a new one. And it sounds like it's having difficulty doing that. So that's why you keep getting that same dialogue. So well, I don't know. He says he's got a he says it wiped it out and created a new one. Oh, but that message keeps coming up. Exactly. Ooh, oh, and that's why that's why I'm 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 not. I wonder entirely, if that disk is faulty. Yeah, I'm not entirely that, convinced that, may, that, it, hmm. that it created. Well, he's got other machines backing up to it. Um, I'm not oh, entirely convinced oh. that it created a new one, but um, but I have the ability to check at least and see what happened on my end here. So while we wait for my time capsule to spin up, because that would be the thing if if this new uh, or if the current thing uh, the current sparse bundle for my iMac now my, it was created monday april 4th at 5 46 p.m which is uh right about the time when i threw in the towel and decided to let it create a new bundle so it is creating a new one each time mm-hmm. I just i don't know it's it it doesn't make sense uh yeah yeah i don't know the magic answer on this I, you know, I would run a verify with disk utility on that. Yeah. I, I would follow these instructions for, for Adam here. Follow these instructions that John found in the in the knowledge base article. At least you'll see what error is being reported. Right. And, and, and it might not be, you know, remember what I said before. If FSCK fails for any reason, including that I simply forced it to quit. Right. I mean, this is not. I found a problem. This is I died, you know, and, and it could could be anything, right? You could have some memory problem on your computer that causes FSCK to die. There could be some problem with FSCK and the file itself is corrupt. And that's what because it's just another program, right? So it's quitting for some reason. And if you can see what that reason is and you'll get more data inside of it uh, inside a disk utility, that might that might help. That's my thought anyway. Yeah, I mean the only uh, the uh, the last thing that occurs to me is that technically this is not a supported configuration, right? Yeah, you know, um, air disk connected to even though it works, like I think I mentioned to you, it, I have my mom set up like this. Unsupported though, because I uh, see, I think y- that's you, changed. Well, well, here's the thing. Well, the thing is, I think you can do it, but they tell you it's, and I can find I I can do my Google foo and find the <laughs> support article. I'm sure you but can. I I don't believe that a drive connected to an airport extreme via the USB port. Yeah. Although I know lots of people that do this, including uh, my mom's setup like this. And last I was over there, it's working just great. Time machine sees it. Uh, I don't think that is an officially supported configuration connected to a time capsule. Yes. Right. 
right to a airport extreme although i think they're pretty much equivalent except <laughs> of course the airport extreme doesn't have a hard drive inside of it i don't know if it's a, maybe he stumbled across some bizarre bug that is why they don't recommend this I, yeah I, I see know. i thought that i thought that went away i thought it was it became a supported configuration with the newer breed of airport extremes I, but i could be wrong I, I i could you know but um because you used to have to use a hack to enable it. You used to have to go to the command line and basically say enable it, even though I know it's not supposed to be enabled. But now you don't even have to do that anymore. So I don't know. We got we got to find that knowledge base article and see uh, see if it still exists. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. OK. All right. Uh, I will uh, play Andy's question here, which has uh, which has an interesting but uh, relatively simple answer. Hey guys, it's Andy from the University of New Hampshire. I have a weird audio routing thing that I'm trying to figure out how to do, and I'm wondering if you guys have any brilliant suggestions, since all your suggestions are usually brilliant. Um, I am running Windows XP inside VirtualBox um, on my Mac, uh, running Snow Leopard for a legacy application that happens to be an audio measurement tool that I use for calibrating sound systems. Um, the problem is I have an audio interface, which is a multi-channel interface. It has a bunch of inputs and a bunch of outputs, um, connects via firewire. And what I want to do is route one set of the inputs on it into my virtual box and one set of outputs from the virtual box to a set of physical outputs on the device. Um, virtual box will send audio through Mac OS X's default output, whatever you select in the sound um, preference pane. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any way to direct it. And I'm wondering, I mean, maybe this is an Audio Hijack Pro thing, which would be fine. Um, I just haven't had a chance to try it. Uh, or maybe there's some more kind of direct way of doing it. So um, I would appreciate your wisdom. I do lots and lots of audio, but have never used VirtualBox. So I uh, prefer this. So thank you very much. And this is where you cut me off. All right. So it's important to note VirtualBox. Go ahead, John. Uh, well, no, I just want to mention is that so I have VirtualBox and I looked at this, Dave, and now uh, to begin the discussion, VirtualBox gives you two choices if you enable audio through VirtualBox. OK, so one is the host audio driver. And the choice that I see here is core audio, which last I checked is the audio framework that's in Mac OS 10. So that's a sure. good thing. Yep. And I think that's why it works at all is that it's tying into the core audio service. Here's the weird thing, though, is that the audio controller is that you get a number of choices here. Now, the thing I have it set up for is ICH space AC97, which I think is some emulated sound chipset. It also does, oh, blast from the past, Sound Blaster 16 and Intel HD audio. So I'm wondering... So one place to look is that you have three choices there as far as what type of audio device you wanted to emulate. I wonder if that may figure into it, but but you've done more audio than I have, but I just want to set the 
okay. groundwork here. All right. So you in, can in what VirtualBox thinks it's doing when it when it's looking to the Mac to provide audio services. Okay, so if I understand this correctly, the there are two sides VirtualBox as with any it's not emulation, it's virtualization software, right? Right, right. It it, it has uh, two faces, essentially, to every hardware device. There is the actual hardware device that it's talking to on the Mac side. So I'll call that its external face. And then mm-hmm. its internal face is how it registers that with Windows. And of course, the magic of all this virtualization software is the layer in between, right? It's got this outside face and this internal face, and it's got to marry them together. So... You're talking about, right? Okay, so it's external face is that it's going to talk to core audio and there are no other choices, right? Well, the only, well, there is. What what is the other choice? It's null null audio driver, which uh, (laughs) to me implies... Yes. Uh, I, I think that means no support. Yeah. Ixnay. That's right. Yeah. So and, and then it, audio controller is, I think, yeah, as you said, how it appears to the Windows right. virtual so machine. It's going to emulate that, that ICH AC 97 or gosh, a Sound Blaster 16 or, or, or whatever on the inside. So so the question is, you know, what do we wire up here? So we are limited. We know that the Mac is talking to this this uh, board that he's got, this audio interface that he's got. But. It's only talking to core audio. And and I actually heard from Andy today and, and he confirmed this, that the only way to choose the audio devices that go in and out of VirtualBox is to go into the system preferences on the Mac OS 10 side, go into system preferences sound and set your input and output sound. And whatever you've got chosen there, that's what VirtualBox gets to deal with. So. Uh, there are two ways to solve this problem that I know of. One of them is what Andy started started talking about here, which is to use Audio Hijack Pro and something called Soundflower. Soundflower is software that emulates a hardware device. And without getting overly geeky about how it's done, he essentially, via software, wired up the right ports coming to and from his uh audio interface and wired those up to ports on soundflower what soundflower then he said selected soundflower as both his audio input and his audio output and be, and using audio hijack pro was able to configure which ports on his physical interface wired up to the 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 ports that VirtualBox got to see via soundflower now that's it. It works. And it's probably your least expensive solution because I think you're looking at about 40 bucks for audio hijack pro a more potentially more elegant solution is using something like wiretap anywhere. And I think that's like 120 bucks, but don't quote me on that, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not as cheap as audio hijack pro, uh, but it will create these audio devices by itself. So you don't have to use this third party Soundflower thing which is limited in and of itself, but worked for Andy's purpose. So, you know, you could in, inside wiretap anywhere, you actually go in and you say, okay, I want to create a, what appears to the computer to be an, a, a hardware audio device, but really it's just software saying route this sound from here to here. And, and that would work as well. So that's my, uh, that's my theory. That's my answer on that. All right. Uh, we've got some tips and, and we'll touch on at least a couple cool stuff found items because we, uh, because we're starting to do that now to make sure that that queue doesn't get overflowing. Uh, 
Are there any other of these questions up top here that you want to, uh, that you want to do before we move on to tips, John? Is there, is there one? <sighs> you want to do the, You want to do the thing from Jeff? You know, we could, because I, uh, that, that I think is a good troubleshooting. Yeah, one. go. All right. Uh, so you want me to set this one up for you here, John? Well, well, I can set it up. Yeah, go ahead. You, you want to let me set it up? Yeah, okay, go. so Jeff, who is uh, on the, the staff of uh, Backbeat Media. I That's believe, right, Jeff Q. Yeah. Actually sent out a little query while I was on Twitter saying, my eyesight doesn't work. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's too bad. Eyesight, of course, being the built-in camera on pretty much any portable Mac. And yeah. even the... And uh, the, the uh, right, but, but I believe in his case, and I'm not sure, I thought he was on a MacBook. He's on a MacBook Pro. That's right. Okay, and and here was his problem. Let, let me see if I can bring up the uh, the the letter that he wrote me here because I copied our uh, Twitter discussion. Yes, so here's how it went. <laughs> so uh, Jeff said my built-in eyesight camera stopped working. Is it broken or is it possible I turned it off? Now, as far as I know, there's no way to control it or turn it off. Is there a setting for that? And so I said to him, Well, one, I told him, Well, why don't you go in System Profiler, which of course you can go to from the Apple menu if you hold down. The uh, alt key, you can bring up system profiler. And last I checked, all eyesight cameras are USB devices. So I said, well, click on USB and see if the, in, the internal ones are. Yeah, there's the there was the old external firewire oh, yeah, yeah. eyesight, but that's not what he's talking about. That's right. Right. So the internal ones, like at least on my MacBook Pro, shows up in, in the USB choice. So if you go to hardware USB on one of the USB buses, you should see eyesight camera or something similar. And he said, no, I don't see that. And I'm like, well, since it's a USB device, I said, uh. Uh, and, and here was the wording. I said, so my only thought is since it's USB device, disconnect any other USB devices and see if it shows up. And he said to me, that actually worked. Thanks. That's awesome. <laughs> then when I plugged my hard drives back in, it stayed on. That part I'm not sure about. And then I said back to him, well, that was a lucky. I mean, I knew that <laughs> solve your problem. <laughs> but no, now what concerns me, though, is that. So as you may or may not know, but if you, if you look in System Profiler, USB Every USB bus has an advertised maximum current rating in milliamps. Now, what's concerning me is I think there may be something wonky with his machine. What what he did leads me to believe that the USB drives may be... Uh, I'm going to guess that they are bus powered. So, so USB drives can get power from two places. They can either get power from an external power adapter or from the USB bus, but that's limited. And like I'm looking right now, at least on my my mini and it says 500 milliamps right and every device is supposed to advertise so i think what happened is he may have maxed out the power capability or the current capability of the usb bus and when uh. the camera tried to come online he didn't get an error it, it was just like yep can't do it now the fact that he yeah, changed the order in which he did things right. and now it all works now i don't think the machine's going to burst into flames but it leads me to believe that either he should probably run these drives off of external power versus bus power because I think he'll run into the same thing again or something's wonky with his machine and uh, your thoughts. But, but I, uh, again, I was, uh, I was happy that my initial diagnostic was correct and that he was able to run the camera with nothing else on the USB bus. But I mean, what, what do you think? Well, we've seen this before where the, the camera just dies. Right. But, but, you know, sometimes a reboot fixes it and, and it is, as you said, you know, very tied to a happily running USB bus. So, 
Yeah, this is where I hope he doesn't have a problem because, well, first of all, we don't like anybody having problems. And especially I don't like Jeff, who's one of our, you know, star salespeople here at Backbeat. I don't want him to be without his MacBook Pro. But um, yeah, I, I hope that that's I hope that's all it was. Uh, certainly, you know, the wrong power draw. And and as you well know, John, those drives will take varying levels of power depending on what they need to do. If both of them need to spin up simultaneously, well, that's going to draw a whole lot more power than if, you know, just one's running and one's asleep and, and there's no camera running. So he may have hit that perfect storm of all that stuff that made it so that something had to you know, electronically fall off the USB bus. Um, hopefully it's not a bad connection inside that, you know, when he was, Moving the computer to, as he un, as he disconnected it, the rest of the USB, maybe that camera, you know, reseated itself. Uh, if that's the case, then that's, you know, the computer's coming apart at some point. It, either he's taking it apart or Apple is. But so I, I mean, it just gets me because there there are two aspects to this and then we should move on. There is yeah. the software aspect where right. each USB device, both the USB controller and all devices should be advertising how much power they need or how much they can supply. And the OS should be able to detect this. What makes me nervous is that that's software. Now the software can lie. Like for example, he right. may have a drive that's right. not properly advertising. And maybe this is a, maybe what's happening to him is it's being enforced by hardware is that it's physically unable. Yeah, it sure, that it makes sure me sounds nervous like that happened this time. That's right. Cause I've, I've seen some devices and you know, they're either not programmed properly or whatever, but they will say, Oh, I'm a USB device and I need, uh, I have seen this saying, oh, my current requirements are zero milliamps, which is of course impossible. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, every USB device needs some power last I checked. So, yeah. all right. But anyway, so, so, uh, it worked. Uh, I said camera is USB device. If you have that, problems no, with it, it's a good, it's a good ooh. lesson in troubleshooting, right? Ooh, you know, I got a, I got a troubleshooting ooh, ooh. tip then possibly. Oh. Go get one of those powered USB hubs. Yes. And plug it, plug that in. And then, you know, it has the external power. You know what yep. I'm talking yep. about? It's yep. like a four port hub. So if you yep. have a powered that USB would do hub, hub, plug that in and see if that happens. And then that would at least help. You think it, it should it definitely you know, would it, help. assuming that maybe the drive doesn't have the ability to convert between bus powered and, and external power. Right. You know, right. If it's yeah, only a bus powered drive. Don't. Then if you could do that, then yeah. that may help the troubleshooting issue. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. All right. Our, our, oh, well, you know, before we get to tips, John, I, I want to talk oh, about our second sponsor for this show, which is Circus Ponies and Notebook. We've talked about this before. We will talk about it again. Uh, Notebook's one of those kind of cool programs that takes a paradigm that works so well in the physical world and moves it to the digital world and actually makes it better. So the idea is the white lined spiral bound notebook that we all took to classes with us and probably still take to classes with us because that's kind of how we, we live in a world that's still, you know, very uh, paper oriented. So, you know, you get to class, you start taking your notes and you, of course you don't have, it doesn't have to be a class. It could be a meeting. It could be a project you're working on, but something where you would dedicate a notebook to it. Well, move that to the computer. You start with the same white lined view, if you will, uh, but instead of writing, you probably want to type because you can type faster than maybe you can write and it organizes everything. If you want to insert pages, 
No problem. If you want to remove pages, no problem. If you want to take an image that you have that's related, maybe from a web page or from course notes that the teacher provides, you pull it right in. And there it is. It lives inside your notebook. Same thing with uh, audio files. You could record a lecture and pull that in and type it all out and, and keep your notes right there. Notebook is built to organize all of this stuff about a particular topic coming in different mediums. And you can add stickies. You can, you can pull in a PDF, let's say the professor or something, or, or, you know, you're working on a project at work provided with a PDF, you pull that in and now you've got that in there and you can annotate that. It's even got a to-do list built in. So you can, if you've got a project going on, you can start adding. And then of course, ticking off things on this to-do list all inside of this one application on your Mac. So it ties it all together. You can search. And if you know when something was put in, you can search by that. If you know what you typed, you can search by that and it will find it. What it gets really cool as if this wasn't cool enough is when you move it to your iPad and you can sync notebooks between your Mac and your iPad and you can edit in both places. So you could bring your iPad with you to class or a meeting or anything like that. Edit there, sync it back to your Mac, edit there, sync it back and forth. Everything's peachy. This all starts at, oh, oh Pete, are you? Are oh, yeah, you, I found a new go. service in it because oh, okay. I've taken on a new project at work and yep. I'm starting to do a, uh, use this one new notebook for a project management. And one of the cool things, you talk about importing, but, but one of the really cool things this has is called a clipping service. And so you can be on a Safari or Firefox web page, oh. then highlight uh, a web page or a portion thereof or something like that, and then go up to the Safari menu and services and the page in your notebook is available under services go yeah clip it over to that notebook for me boom really just launches it right in there no cut and paste so you don't it, even have to pick you pick right from the services menu which which, which of your page notebook you want it on wow. in the notebook yeah it's slick wow yeah. cool so Circusponies.com. Uh, the notebook for the Mac is available as a free download to try it out. And then it's $49.95, uh, $29.95 if you're a student. So you get a discount there. Notebook for the iPad. Of course, there's no free trial because that's not how the App Store works. It's $29.99 and Apple doesn't care who you are. That's the price. So uh, that's notebook from circusponies.com. All right. We got a lot of tips. Uh, John, we were recently talking about the uh, modifier keys for our friend who had uh, who had a keyboard problem, a third party Logitech keyboard problem. And uh, we talked about the modifier keys button in there. And Tim wrote in, he said, uh, one of the other reasons the modifier keys button inside system preferences and keyboard is useful is the remapping of caps lock to control. For people who use control often, e.g. those people who use Emacs or the Emacs shortcuts built into Mac OS X, doing this remapping is very useful. In fact, a lot of Unix systems had this kind of keyboard layout. So just an interesting little uh, little tidbit about that there. And that, that's actually pretty cool. If you had control where you could lock it down, that's actually kind of cool. So thank you, Tim. Uh, along those same lines, we got a note from Todd talking about the same, uh, the same issue. Now, Todd was the one who wrote in and had this, uh, had this particular issue. And he said, I appreciate the discussion and I've tried all of those options and haven't gotten anything to actually change the keyboard. However, I found a killer little app that 
does all sorts of keyboard magic. Double command, which is one we've talked about here on the show before, I think, John. Uh, he says it's a great keyboard modifier program that works as a system preference pane. It hasn't been updated for a couple of years, but it is a 64 bit pref pane. So that's all that that meets one of your uh, baseline criteria. Right, John? And works in 10.6 Snow Leopard. And uh, and he says it also works in the developer preview of 10.7. So he says it's really worth the time to check out. It's double command dot which, of course, we will put in the show notes. Do you use double command, John? I think I think you were the one that no. brought it up for a cool stuff found years ago. No. I may have, but I don't use it. Okay. But um, but I want to toss out a tip, a quick tip, go. Dave. Yeah, go. So all, all all this keyboard stuff, which some people still use the keyboard, not everybody's uh, converted to the iPad and That's right and all of that. But I found this. So so one thing is I'm exploring development with Xcode, and they have. Coco and NS text view, which is typically the class of a window that shows you text. There's a few cool things you could do. Now, one, which I don't, I don't know if it's directly related to text view. Yes. But if you highlight something in most apps that are Coco and you do control command D, do you know what that does, Dave? Well, I do now, but only because you showed me earlier. <laughs> it's so cool. It links to the Mac OS 10 dictionary and actually uh, yeah, so it brings up a little floating window, and, and I think there's actually a little pull-down where instead of the dictionary, you can say, oh, show me the thesaurus instead. Awesome. So that I, I just found while I was doing random surfing. And then the other thing, which this gets a little deeper because I was digging into how you can modify the behavior of an NS text view because we were talking about word completion, right? which was the tip that Nancy gave us in her article. But there's another thing that is not on by default, and maybe this is a good thing in most apps like Mail or TextEdit that support Coco and text NS text view, that there's a grammar checker. And you can invoke this where if you right-click or control-click, whatever you want to do, and you'll see a whole bunch of things come up, and there's a spelling and grammar menu, and one of them is uh, check grammar. That's awesome. Just thought I mentioned that is I, I did not know until I dug into this a little bit and looking at the API and the description of NX, NS text view that there's actually a grammar checker built into OS 10 as well. Now, I, I don't know if it's as good as the spell check. I mean, the spell checker, I think is pretty straightforward. Yeah, right. Or the autocomplete. But it just surprised me huh. that you have all this functionality and that, you know, that's the beauty of Coco or any framework. Yes. Is that. You know, and it's interesting because the, the project that I'm working on now, which is a basic project that just has a text window, yep. you you get all this stuff built in. You have to do nothing. You just say build an app, include NS text view, compile it, and you get all this stuff. You get a spell checker, you get autocomplete, you get a grammar checker if you choose it as an option. It, it's just amazing what they include That's uh, yeah. to, to get you started. So uh, That's how it should be. It should be, and and you can also enable or disable. Okay, uh, but 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 it's nice because the framework, uh, like I said, you can build an app that does text editing, and you get every uh, all these things cut, paste, copy, all of that stuff is all built in. You, you have just to do get it nothing wow. to get a basic app. So so building a text a basic text editor is trivial with Xcode because it's because really you're just wrapping around the framework. Because Coco, there. yeah, because Coco is just building all that in into this big Wampin class called a NS text view class. Huh. So good stuff. Yeah, that's cool. That's and cool. if you want to, if you want to pair stuff out, then I, I guess you can. And that, that, that's the point I'm at right now is learning how to, you know, disable certain things. And actually I, I saw it as a challenge. It's like, well, how do I turn these things off if I don't want them? Right. Right. 
Cool. So do we have some more? Uh, uh, we, we've got a couple here? of tips. Yeah. Um, so Sarah writes and, and she says, uh, I was listening to Mac Geek Geekab 323 and you were responding to a question about a Mac app store. And John, you were lamenting that Brr. the app store badge on the dock doesn't automatically notify you when new versions are available or new updates are available. Also, a listener was disappointed that apps not purchased via the app store aren't able to be updated through the app store. Definitely the app store needs to make some improvements in order to fulfill the promise of what's set out to be. However, there is a solution before the app store came along. I began using an application called bodega. It does what the app store does, but way better. And it uses a notification system to bring up a screen and tell you that the bodega store has X number of updates available for you. It's a great interface. And not only does it show you the updates available and your current version, but it also provides a get update button for each available update, then downloads and uh, installs the updated app. I continue to use Bodega and they continue to develop in spite of the presence of the new Apple app store. Bodega is a better solution by far for those of us that have so many applications purchased long before the app store came along. And it is appbodega.com. You know, I knew about Bodega. I'd seen it advertised and I guess I'd never installed it. So at, uh, after I read Sarah's email today, I installed it, John, and it's awesome. It's everything she just described. It, it scoured my applications folder, uh, came up with a list of everything right inside Bodega. And it said, look, these, you know, 15 apps you're you're out of date on. Here's the version you have. Here's the version that's out there. And she's right. You just click get update and then install, get update, install. And it, it did, you know, 10 of them in parallel with each other and installed. And now I'm totally up to date. It, it, it really is. And of course, then you can buy through it. And that's how they're making their money, which is great. But uh, but it it's you know it's the app store for for the rest of us if you will I mean I you know I think Apple's app store is obviously going to see the the bulk of the traffic but but this is you know where you can get things that Apple you know maybe just don't fit into their mold of what what goes into their app store so uh, so definitely cool and the fact that it manages these updates I know there's a lot of apps that do it but this is this is the best interface that for me that I've found so far for uh for doing that so so but okay. thanks thanks sir yeah very cool i've done uh, i don't know how i feel about it uh, cnet has an app that uh, has changed a little bit but but it's also the old, a the old version tracker app yeah well uh, now it's under cnet right and it's a, right. it's a I, I think a pref pane and it will look and every now and then will come up and say hey by the way and and i think they have different versions the freebie or the cheapskate version will yeah. tell you all right you know shows your web page here's your apps here's the current version here's what you have would you like to update it and it'll send you automatic uh, or, or i've gotten emails from them saying oh the app that you updated through us there's a new version so so it's kind of nice that's cool um, the, the, the problem that I've found with a lot of these apps though, is that either people see the database with bogus data or they kind of get it wrong as far as parsing the version number. In some uh, cases they'll tell you there's a new version of something when there's not. And, and again, I'm not sure of the source of that. Maybe right. it's people trying to, but I did, know. I did 10 or 15 updates this morning okay. with bodega and, and didn't run into that. Good. And it was okay. totally smooth. I mean, it, it never sent me off to, a, it didn't do it. It was like updating from within the app store. You just hit the button and then it, it just did it. There was no user okay. interaction other than agreeing to let it happen. Excellent. Yeah. So maybe they have somebody police the, yeah. uh, the database and the version. My guess is sure they're actually accurate because okay. they're selling this stuff and making money. They probably right, right. have a better relationship with, you know, or a closer mm-hmm, relationship mm-hmm. to the vendors. So yeah, that's yeah. So, 
Uh, and then one last thing that actually answers a question that we don't even have to ask. So, Kevin, take it away. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's Kevin here. Um, I uh, just listened to show 323, and you guys were talking about using Podcaster for uh, for the Mac Geek Gab premium feed. And uh, I have a, I got it to work. Um, I got a real kind of cool way to do it. So um, what I did is I took the, the same premium URL feed out of iTunes, and I just copied and pasted that into an email. Emailed it to myself, and then uh, and then on the iPhone, I copy and pasted that URL into uh, into Podcaster. And if I use the premium MacGeekGab URL, then I actually got a little prompt within Pod- Podcaster that uh, that asked me for my username and password. And it uh, worked really well. I've had no issues. It's downloading all the, the the full feed just like it did in iTunes. And I'm loving Podcaster. Um, yeah, it's great, great app. So, um, so I got that to work really well. There's my uh, my tip. This is where you cut me off. Have a good day. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, you described it better, probably better than I would have. So, thank you for uh, for doing that. All right, we have. Uh, we'll do two cool stuff found items, and uh, the first, I think, this is cool. Michael sent this in. Uh, and, and I say Michael sent this in. Uh, but I don't know which Michael, uh, an app called jump desktop. And the best way to see how this works is to go to jumpdesktop.com and watch their little movie. So the idea is you have your iPhone or your iPad and you want to remote control a Mac from them. Uh, and, and there are, there are some remote control and remote desktop apps and that sort of thing. What jump desktop does though, is Let's take the iPhone first. You can plug in an external monitor to your iPhone with the new uh, little uh, the the little connection kit that came with the iPad too. So or or really with uh, with even just the the VGA connection kit that 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 exists. So if you do that and then you plug in a Bluetooth keyboard, you use your iPhone screen as the mouse as the touchpad, and then you've got. Remote desktop, full monitor, whatever monitor you have your uh, your iPhone plugged into and a Bluetooth keyboard. And it just totally works. But you don't have to carry a computer with you. You're just doing it with your phone, which is pretty darn cool. And again, the video explained this. The iPad version works uh, or it, 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 I think it's a universal app. So it works on the iPhone or, or the iPod touch or the iPad. Uh, the iPad version uh, expands to make use of the, the larger screen. You can actually do um full keyboard on it if you want, or you can do a Bluetooth keyboard and then you can do mouse stuff uh, on it as well. So jump desktop. It's, it's not cheap for an app. I mean, it's cheap. It's 20 bucks, but, uh, but it, it's the best remote control paradigm I've seen. I haven't tried it yet. I didn't, I don't have all the right hardware to make it work the way I want to work, but, uh, but it, it looks cool. And, and the fact that you've already always got that connectivity in your pocket, that's, that's the really cool part. Did you watch the video, John? No. Okay. You, you'll like it when you do. Not that video. I've, I've watched many videos. Okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, and then Kirk pointed us to a blog post over at uh, com, the unofficial Apple weblog, uh, about logging in. Uh, you know, if you want your Mac to be secure, you want to disable auto login, right? But the problem with that is, you know, if you're like me and, and this the, com- the computer we have here in the studio is a perfect example. Once I log into it, 
it there's probably a, a three to five minute lag as it you know starts up everything it, it launches the finder it, it's got a load dropbox it's got to do it it's you know i i sync mobile me sync and it's got you know all that stuff's happening so if i happen to reboot this machine and then walk away and don't come back for a couple of days it's not logged in it's not doing any of that syncing and i'm sort of left behind the eight ball when i come up here to podcast but i like it to be secure and of course we use multiple logins because lisa's sometimes here so the folks at Tua uh, recently, sometime in the last month, posted a little tutorial about turning. What you do is you turn on auto login and then you create this launch agent uh, item that immediately logs you out and sends you back to the login screen, which means the, the net result is the computer starts up. You're left at the login screen, but one of your accounts, whichever one you designate, is automatically logged in and starting everything up. So when you get back to your computer, you type in your password at the login screen and bam, you're right there and everything's good to go as you wanted it. So, uh, so we'll post a link to that. We've got a link in the, uh, in the show notes. It's free. You know, you just type this little thing up and, and, uh, and you're good to go. So that's, hmm. yeah, I know. And it, and they say that it, you know, there were some comments on the story about, well, how secure is this? And the answer is, well, it, you know, that you never have the opportunity to stop this from happening. So, um, hmm. it, you know, if somebody gets your computer, it doesn't matter what you've done to it. They can take the drive out, mount it in another machine. And, you know, unless you've got it encrypted, they're going to get your data. Right. So, so in that sense, yeah, it's, it's no less secure than, uh, than anything else, but it's interesting. It's time to bring the band in, John. Yeah, it's a tough one, man. The band. I'm, I'm sure they were frolicking about. In the, in, in the, the, the uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's what bands do—they frolic. That's right. Yeah, every band I've ever played in, all we do is frolic. Good. <laughs> uh, so we had a lot of comments, a lot of questions, some great tips, and of course, killer cool stuff found. If you have anything you want to send us, here's how. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the email address to use. This one time I'm going to agree with you, Dave. <laughs> uh, so you send your stuff to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. It can be text. It can be pictures. No, wait, 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 wait. What files. did you say? <laughs> no, no, no. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Dang it. I thought I could slip Sorry. that that second one past you there. Uh, but you're right. Text, pictures, movies. Well, I don't know about movies, but uh, whatever helps us understand your problem or issue or concern. Yep. 206-666-GEEK is the number to call, and John Geek is... 4335. That's right. And you can Skype us to Mac Geek Gab as well. We get everything that comes in. Uh, we do go through everything that comes in, and uh, here's a little secret. We try to reply to everything that comes in, but we... We don't always yeah. succeed there, but uh, but we do our darndest. Ah, what else? Comments. comments. iTunes comments. Yeah. We love them. Yeah, please keep them coming. And uh, and you can so we're going to be off for 2 weeks. You can you can find uh, you can find us on Twitter. I'm Dave Hamilton, twitter.com/davehamilton. He's John F. Braun. The guy next to me is Pilot Pete. You can find out uh, news about the show at Mac Geek Gab. And then, of course, Mac Observer covers all the headlines from uh, from TMO all day long. I'd like to thank Michael Johnston. He hosts the We Have Communicators podcast and also 
he takes the time each week and has done so. He's been with us so long. Uh, he converts the show to AAC and does a great job with it. So thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. Everybody send your uh, your love out to Michael. Michael Johnston on Twitter. <laughs> Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth. And the podcast marketplace includes the A5 speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo, and BB Edit from Barebones Software, Text Expander and Text Expander Touch from Smile, and Notebook from Circus Ponies all through Backbeat Media. Have a great week, folks, and uh, we'll talk to you on the other side. What am I going to do? Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay my taxes. Well, we get an extension, right? Wait, what? If you file for one. Yeah. 18th. Well, no, 18th now. It's the 18th. The 30th Do not accept tax advice from John F. Brock. And if you do. That's right. If you do accept tax advice from any of the three of us. Don't get it.